Welcome everyone to episode five of season five of the Northern Spoon podcast. My name is Michael Taylor. By day, I'm the editor of thebusinessdesk.com in the Northwest. We're in the middle of party conference season, so we've got a lot to get through on this episode. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Chris McGuire, who describes himself as a lowercase c conservative. I used to. I used to, Michael. I used to describe myself. Yeah, yeah. But I have to be honest and say that if I had a membership to the Lower KC Conservative Society, I would have ripped it up after the Tories officially abandoned the North at last week's party conference and the idea of levelling up has been consigned to the history books. So I'm very, very, uh, very, very angry about that. Uh, this show is brought to you in association with FI Real Estate Management and Assets Capital, but more about them later. What are we going to talk about today, Michael? Well, Chris, in a nutshell, the Tories, the North, Labour and Israel. But rather than just rehash the shambles, which was the Tory party conference, we're going to focus on the North's reaction to it, both in the media, from political leaders, from business figures, and, you know, which is the whole reason why, really, that you came up with the idea of us doing this podcast, wasn't it? 100%, yeah, yeah. 100%. And that's why I feel angry for, because I think the North has, been, has, been, has just been abandoned. Yeah, so I'm going to head over to Liverpool on Tuesday. That's tomorrow. We're recording this on a Monday. So I'm going to Liverpool tomorrow for the Labour Party conference, which will be in buoyant mood after their by-election win in Rutherglen and Hamilton West in Scotland. Yeah, I think this is a crucial week for Sakir Starmer in lots of different levels. Rishi Sunak created this huge opportunity, this huge open goal for him in the north because of the events of last week with the Tory conference. Um, I still think that Labour, but particularly Rishi Sunak, have got to convince the public what he and what Labour stand for. To um, misquote the Eminem song, the real Slim Shady. Can the real Keir Starmer please stand up? That's, please stand up. That's quite unusual for you <laughs> to come up with a hit music reference. I think possibly you should stick to Roy Orbison. Yeah. But anyway, before we do that, all our thank yous. Let's start with our producers, What Media, who expertly produce this podcast every single week and lots of other podcasts we've been hearing. They are the unsung heroes of the Northern Spin podcast, the kings of video content creation. Every week they turn this, all our weekly ramblings, into a hit YouTube show and podcast. Yeah, but I mean, what media are more than just that, aren't they? Because, yeah. you know, we're here today, we turn up, we, 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 weren't, uh, we didn't do a podcast last week, but they're part of the family, they understand what makes us tick. And actually, they have a really interesting politics as well. So, uh, yeah, what media really do go above and beyond. I'd like to say a thank you to our sponsors, particularly our headline sponsor, FI Real Estate Management. FI Real Estate Management is headquartered in Chorley, but they have a network of properties across the UK which tenants can tap into. They've just secured planning permission to build 74,000 square feet of new industrial space at Deeside Industrial Estate. Things are really taking off there. They can cater for everyone from a one-man band working from home and needing space to enterprise customers needing a whole building. They don't just work in one sector and they work across the office, commercial and industrial markets. So FI Real Estate Management pride themselves on growing with their customers on their journey. And if you need space, you need FI. Right. We can't put it off any longer, Chris. Let's talk about the shambolic Conservative Party conference and what it means for the North. Give us a quick recap with the emphasis on the quick. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm not going to do a blow-by-blow account of what happened. We'll be here all day. But the two incidents that stood out for me, Rishi Sunak repeatedly said no decision had been made on High Speed 2. We'd alluded to it in the two previous podcasts, mm. but no sooner had he made the announcement at his speech and a video appeared explaining his decision, which had clearly been recorded at 10 Downing Street several days earlier. So he treats the North with contempt. That's example number one. The other one, uh, number two, the government made a series of transport announcements, including extending the Metro link to Manchester Airport. The only problem being, as was pointed out on social media, that it opened in 2014. Now, I actually think they're referring to connections to Terminal 2, but the so-called Network North document really was written on the back of a fag packet, which will soon be banned. So the reality is the North don't trust the Conservatives. We just don't believe anything they say. I was actually at Manchester Airport when I came back from my holidays, when I went to pick my son up and when we went over for something else at the weekend. And the Metrolink goes into the main station, which is right between Terminals 1 and 2. If anything, it's already really close to Terminal 2. I really don't know what's going on. I've never heard anything about that project before. You're pretty angry about the Network North document, aren't you? Yeah, I am actually. So um, one of the Tory successes over the last 13 years you know, we do try and be fair. We do try and bring some balance and perspective and analysis on this podcast, despite, you know, all, all the accusations you throw at me for being one-eyed. Yeah. But I'm going to acknowledge that one of the things that they have achieved is the uh, is, is devolution and de devolving power to the regions. And they've done that through Metro Mayors. 
And yet last week, they just trod all over any of that consensus building that they'd attempted to do, that partnership working. You know, we had Andy Burnham on our podcast, didn't we, as a, as a special guest at the end of season four. And he spoke about his willingness to lean in and work with whoever is the government of the day. And they've trodden all over it. I think it's um, it's shambolic. And that, that, that I, like I said, I don't recall the airport terminal two ever being mentioned, but there are genuine moves to get in the tram to go to Stockport, for instance, the borough bordering Manchester, the only Greater Manchester borough that borders Manchester that doesn't currently have Metrolink. But by not mentioning that, a regional priority and vaguely Googling some other random places, they just made it seem like what it is, which is just a vague wish list. It oozed contempt. For the, for the people of the North. And it was, by some distance, the worst document I've ever seen issued by a government department. Can't disagree with you. Now, Mark Harper, he, you know, his whole defence of it fell apart at the weekend. He was asked on Victoria Derbyshire's show uh, uh, over the weekend to defend the document and to defend some of the decisions and be pointing out some of its shortcomings. And he kind of goes, oh, it was just a bit of a wish list, really, and just brushed aside... You know, however much money they were planning for either be it potholes in the southeast, a Metrolink for Brad for an extended station at Bradford or a tram system in Bristol. It's just make stuff up as you go along and put your finger in the air. Anyway, our on manoeuvres section in part two of this podcast is going to be dominated by the Conservatives and particularly the candidates who are pitching to be the next leader. But Chris, you want to talk more about the North's reaction to Tory conference. Yeah, and it, there was a visceral reaction to it, but that was before the actual election. That was before the conference started because, you know, the, the Conservatives have been saying, we're not going to talk about High Speed 2, you know, we're not going to say anything. So so when when the conference started proper last Monday, Manchester Evening News did a front-page story, picture of Rishi Sunak next to a headline that said, levelling up, so how's it going, Mr Prime Minister, with a big arrow pointing down along with several downward-facing arrows next to words like public spending is down, economy's down, health is down, transport's down. So they'd made their mind up already. Um, there's always been this unwritten constitution, this unwritten convention among regional press that you stay really apolitical as far as you can. I always did when I was the editor of the Chorley Guardian. Clearly not the same size as the Yorkshire Post, but their editor, James Mitchison, who we've mentioned on this podcast before, um, after the High Speed 2 was binned off, he, he tweeted, you and your circus of smiling liars can rot in hell. And the second tweet was, 13 years of being robbed. Apparently we need to change and Rishi is a man to lead that change. Shut up, go away. You've snatched away our last chance. You posh, privileged, rich, disconnected, egotist. Now, <clears throat> I don't agree with the language that James used there. I don't think he should be using that as the editor. But you can understand why he and the Manchester Evening News and other papers and journalists and the media generally, like you know, the Guardian and the Northern-based journalists, are so angry at yeah. the Conservatives. Well, I'm pretty angry too, but um, I, I think the editor of the Yorkshire Post needs to watch his language a bit. I think that is dangerous talk. I think he's crossed a bit of a line there. You know, that's massively hypocritical from me. But I take your point. You know, when I was editor of the uh, of the same magazine that you and I edited it, um, you know, I, I, I kind of left the Labour Party. I left any involvement in local politics. I felt that it, it would have restricted my ability to be critical of... Um, of, of the government of the day, because of course we had a Labour government at the time. Pretty quickly into my editorship, we we had a massive, you know, we 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 were pro the northwest. You know, we were sticking up both for rail infrastructure improvements, the the relocation of a of something called the synchrotron to Oxford Rutherford, rather than to Daresbury. You know, which was a big campaign at the time. I remember Richard Lee standing in St Peter's Square, railing at Alistair Darling with a banner saying "Move over, Darling." You know, we. Yeah, that that seemed like a betrayal at the time, and not taking the northwest and the north and Greater Manchester seriously. I think you've got to pick your fights and pick your campaigns, but you've also got to do so with the use of judicious language when you're in a role like that. You know, I, I was criticised last week for our coverage of HS2 because, frankly, you know, we opened the coverage by saying mixed reaction from local business leaders to HS2 reversal. It wasn't mixed. It was universally hostile. From everybody, you know, and you saw the picture of Andy Burnham um, uh, held a press conference at the very place where North, where, where George Osborne launched the Northern House, where, uh, uh, you know, the Museum of Science and Industry, where Boris Johnson reiterated the commitment to Northern Powerhouse Rail. And he was surrounded by, I noticed in the background, yes, Bev Craig, the leader of Manchester City Council, but Chris Oglesby, he's a one nation Tory. He's from a Tory don donating business, Bruntwood. 
in the past. You know, he's, he's very pro the city, he's very pro anything that advances the North. It's in his own business interest to invest in the North, but he's essentially a one-nation Tory. Also there was the guy from the Federation of Small Businesses. Um, usually, you know, they, they were at the forefront of the campaign against Andy Burnham's clean air zone. They represent angry white van man. I'm going to you know, possibly mischaracterize them. So, you know, this this idea that, um, that, 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 that we would bias towards a Labour line on it is, is wrong because I just didn't hear any voices defending that decision that's from the, business. And from, that's, that's the reason why I think we've got to stand by our principles and say, you know, James Minchin, I think he's done a fantastic job as the editor of the Yorkshire Post, but there is a line, and if you overstep that line, then you get accused of not being impartial. The challenge that you'll always face given your Labour allegiances, and in fairness to you, you've always been fair, um, is that people will throw that at you. I want to mention something. I suppose well, I can't reverse that now. No, no, I, no. I, I literally, I, no. Left, I left journalism. Yeah. I went into politics in a more fulsome way. I stood to be a candidate. I'm not going to try and pretend none of that ever happened, but I will be critical of any Labour leader, be it locally or nationally, and, you know, we'll, dis despite what my instincts are. And, you know, to be fair, Chris... I left the Labour Party at one point, particularly over the issue of anti-Semitism and the, and the direction it was heading in under the previous leader. I spoke to somebody recently at the BBC, a big cheese, and they were talking about their frustration at the BBC's coverage of Brexit. And they said that every morning they had to go out and organise a vox pop to get both sides of the story. Now, everybody was, you know, they had to find somebody who was in favour of Brexit. And they knew, they knew that what they were saying wasn't true, but they reported it anyway because the edict from above was you need yeah. to get that view from somebody that's not talking sense. What you've got in this situation with High Speed 2, taking out some of the Northeast MPs and some of the Northeast politicians who had no interest in it because it didn't go as far as the Northeast, is you had universal anger against the decision to abolish High Speed 2. Not just for High Speed 2, but the message it sends out to the North. But Henry Morrison, Chief Executive of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, we've interviewed him ourselves, um, and he's always... He's always been quite um, careful with his language, but he said he thinks the high-speed announcement could set the North back 100 years. He's completely gone the other way now. He realises, you, know, you know, the genie is out of the bottle. And you, no you know what happened last week? So th this whole idea that capital cities can get overheated, regional economies are the way to level up a nation. A country did that last week. Indonesia announced there. They actually unveiled for the first time and ran trains along their own high-speed line that linked Jakarta, which is an overcrowded, overheating capital, for anyone who's ever been there will know that, um, to its you know, the, the Silicon Valley of Indonesia to open up new economic opportunities as part of China's Belt and Road um, mm. global initiative. You know, so what Sunak has effectively done is say, well, we can't do stuff that's, that's too difficult. Indonesia can do it. I was in Israel the week before, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. They've got a high-speed train link that goes right into the heart of Jerusalem one of the most ancient cities in the world. And yet somehow they've built a modern high-speed rail that goes into, into that city with a tram system as well, yeah, that, only, that a city like Leeds can only dream of having. But Sunet wants to be seen now as being the friend of the motorist because he thinks that will win the next election. But this, this is it, Chris. Everything he spoke about last week wasn't a serious agenda, a serious vision of the future. It was all about prosecuting these culture war arguments. His language on trans people was absolutely disgraceful. Yeah? I know yeah. this makes me sound like a massive hypocrite for um, asking James Mitchell in the Yorkshire Post to mind his P's and Q's, but that was absolute dis a disgraceful comment, that, that the whole idea that people on a whim just decide to change their gender. Well, and just to say Massive as well, misunderstanding you know, of the issues. For those people who didn't hear that part, he just said a man is a man, a woman is a woman. It got the biggest ovation among his audience, and yeah. that was the problem. Here's the other thing, Chris. It also got the biggest headlines in the Daily Mail the next day. They weren't talking about HS2. They weren't particularly talking about this, this idea that he's got about the smoking age either. They were talking about, at last... Sunak is showing some courage that he can save Britain from Starmer's wokeism. I mean, yeah. it's, it's so depressing. People, so can't depressing. people can't define what woke is. I just want to mention some of the reaction as well from some of the politicians to the Tory party conference. So David Cameron, who's kept his counsel, to be fair, um, and Boris Johnson. Or both, as Danny Dyer would say, with his trotters up in knees. <laughs> both, another impression there for the readers and for the listeners. Both their, both their former prime ministers criticised the decision to curtail High Speed 2. 
I want to talk about the reaction of Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham and Conservative West Midlands Mayor Andy Street. Now, the two are good friends. They uh, did a really good interview recently on... Uh, on, on a podcast by Alastair Campbell and Rory Stewart. Um, I think Stewart's comments were really telling. But in terms of Andy Burnham, the Manchester Evening News tweeted a story that a Tory delegate had urinated in a plant pot at Manchester's Midland Hotel before falling over, um, before falling and smashing it, which Andy Burnham retweeted, I quote, like his party treated a city. Now, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Andy Burnham came onto this podcast, last episode of season four, most listened to episode we've ever done, and he spoke about his respect for Michael Gove and the need to work with the Conservatives. So that sort of language reflects his exasperation at what he heard. Um, Andy Street's comments were even more telling. He said that axing the Manchester leg amounted to, ca- uh, his quote, counselling the future, and he even considered uh, quitting as, uh, as mayor of the West Midlands as well. So Rishi Sunak did this impossible achievement. He made the Tories even more unpopular wor- than, than they were before the conference started. Um, I'm going to talk about Labour now. I think the Tories have pretty much thrown in the towel. We're going to talk about on manoeuvres, all the people who want to be the next leader of the Conservative parties. Um, is Labour going to fund High Speed 2? Well, I think that's exactly the kind of question that they wanted to pose to the Labour Party as they start their conference this weekend, as they have started their conference this weekend. It's that all of the announcements last week were just short-term political traps, rhetorical devices. I think Labour have got a big agenda to convince the British people that they're responsible. I think the events in Israel have reminded people that they were led by someone who quite dangerous and quite against most people's political instincts in this country until quite recently. I think the Tories are going to be banging on about that this week. I think the media doorstepping Jeremy Corbyn and asking him about the situation in the Middle East was, I think that's going to really queer Labour's pitch during this conference, actually. But, but if, if Keir Starmer hadn't lanced a boil that was Jeremy Corbyn, then know. everything that's happened... Well, he's gone he's a long to. way. Yeah, he's, he's gone a long to. way to yeah. doing it. So it means that he can at least try and put some yeah. some blue sky thinking between... Some, 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 some blue sky between him and Corbyn. The problem is, of course, that, 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 that sort of the Tories will say you were a Corbynist loyalist in the, in the, uh, in exactly. the day. So let, let's just reflect then on what, what Labour want the agenda to be and what they want the news cycle, because obviously we were very critical about how the Tories messed up in Manchester last week and they had no control over the news agenda at all. They completely lost it. Um, the FT have already called, the Financial Times that is, have already called the conference Davos on the Mersey, given the sheer weight of business figures lining up to attend the conference and go to meetings. They had a small business Sunday event on uh, yesterday, this being Monday, the waiting list to attend it was absolutely enormous. You've had endorsements from the Federation of Small Business, from um, from the British Chambers of Commerce, and, and loads of other business leaders attending the conference who want a dialogue with what they see as a government in waiting. Now, I know you, Chris, like to peddle the nonsense that Labour has no policies, that Keir Starmer doesn't stand for anything, but it's starting to look comprehensive and serious. I was really impressed with the interview that Angela Rayner gave over the weekend not the one where a mum interrupted her with a phone call, yeah. but you know, really talking in quite forensic detail about the very specific legislative timetable needed to be put in place to change workplace dynamics, to get rid of zero-hours contracts, to the steps that are going to have to be taken in order to achieve that. I think that's the sort of language that unions want to see, which should make a much smoother ride at conference, less noise from Sharon Graham and Mick Lynch about their protestations. And at the same time, they're going to have to reassure business that it's about stability and not just about um, you know, siding with the unions at this time of, you know, let's, let's face it, a cost of living crisis that's encouraged a lot of people to demand higher pay, right, uh, higher pay rates. Yeah. So, I mean, I know, I know, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> so say it, go on. No, no, it's, it's um, I think um, the thing with Labour is, and I've spoken to people who are you describe as conservative voters who don't think they can vote conservative. Um, certainly for the time being. The Conservatives have reached the end of the road. There's no goodwill attached to them at all anymore. So it's a question of, I'm not going to vote, I'm not going to vote a Conservative, so actually I'll vote Labour. But Labour have got to give a compelling reason as to why they should be voted uh, for. Now, you messaged me over the weekend with details of Labour's 116-page document. Yes, and I threatened to read it out every time you yeah. said that the Labour have no policies. Yeah, and that, they've said, will form the basis of the next Labour government. Um, but the point still remains, and it is a legitimate point. What does Labour stand for? Now, I looked at some of that 116-page document, not all of it, I'll confess. It was a bit woolly. I think if Keir Starmer can strike, and I think his speech 
on Tuesday, which you're going over to listen to, if his speech on 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 Tuesday can create a vision and create an aspiration, um, then I think he can win over some undecided voters. But I listened to a podcast this morning on Monday driving into uh, Manchester and they were talking about Tony Blair and obviously the relationship between Keir Starmer and Tony Blair is so much closer now than it ever was before. And they said that when it came to 1996, the year before the election, if Tony Blair had a choice between having an argument or having a fudge, he always went for the argument. He said, because we have to be clear in our message to the public. That's what Starmer's got to do. Starmer has got to be, he's got to, he, he's got to stand up and actually he can't be afraid to have an argument. Yeah, he's got to be everything the Tories weren't last week. And the Tories had absolutely nothing to say for young people. What are they, what, what do young people want? They want security of, of, of a, the potential of a job and a career. They want to know that somebody's doing something about protecting the planet from the effects of climate change. Sunak didn't mention any of that. They just sort of rode back on net zero commitments. They are targeting swing voters who might, who might be tempted to vote Labour in red wall seats and in the south of England. They've taken all their cues from the Uxbridge by-election, which showed that some of the short-term measures around net zero are quite unpopular when they're actually, actually delivered. But they had nothing to say for young people in that vision of the future, uh, apart from some of the rhetoric around rip-off degrees. But that's just ultimately going to deny young people the opportunity to go to university because they're just, again, treating another important contributor to our economy as a political football. But I think the housing issue is a good one, that Labour can show their difference, that they're in, in favour of working with property developers, working with local councils, and therefore serving the needs of young people for whom there is a massive housing shortage and to bring rents under control. Making developers commit to building social and affordable housing as a success dividend, in contrast to the situation we've got at the moment under the Tories, of the department giving money back because the Tories have completely given up on housing targets. Now, that's quite a breathless rant. I do apologise no, for that. I, I, one of the things I, I struck me over the weekend was we were talking about um, Kiss Dahmer was asked how he's going to tackle the problem of waiting lists, NHS waiting lists, and he said, We're going to pay. Uh, you know, NHS staff consultants more to work over the weekend, but it will be voluntary. Now, actually, actually, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, now whether or not he can make it happen, um, I don't know. But actually saying it, actually, this is what we want. This is one part of what we want to try and do. It's not the only solution in town, but, um, but, but let's have an honest conversation. And I think on that note, we're going to go to a word with our sponsor, Assets Capital, in a quick interval. Assets Capital is a leading Manchester-based independent specialist lender who, for the last 10 years, have supported UK SME, house builders, property investors and business owners to achieve their ambitions. Having lent over £1.7 billion to date and with ambitious growth plans, assets are well on their way to breaking through the £2 billion of lending as they embark on the next phase of their journey. They have a dedicated team of property professionals and lending specialists who pride themselves on getting to know their customers and being with them on every step of the journey. If you need a straightforward, no-nonsense lending partner with a proven track record, contact Andrew Charnley and the team at Assets Capital. Big enough to matter, small enough to care. Welcome back to part two of Northern Spin. Now, this week, we're talking about on manoeuvres. We always do that in the second part of the show. Um, we, we've basically decided the whole of the Tory party were on manoeuvres at their conference. Um, but let's have a look at anything to see here, which is the other part of part two that we always do. Um, where are we going to start first, Chris? We're going to go north of the border. We're going to go to Scotland. So at the start of this season, I said Labour would win the Hamilton and Rutherglen by-election off the SNP. Convincingly, you said. I did, yeah. You I did, thought yeah. I was I felt very confident they'd do that. And they did. No greater authority than Sir John Curtis, the godfather of political polling, has said that this is hugely significant. It comes down to trust though, doesn't it? Because effectively with Nicola Sturgeon getting arrested, the shortcomings of the SNP in government, them botching this whole idea about the next election's gonna be a referendum on independence. Voters have turned off their brand of centre-left nationalism and they've gone back to Labour as the most viable vehicle to um, attack the Tories and want them out. The Tories lost their deposit 
in this election as well. That was hugely significant. I think it could be a real game changer. I'm not convinced that Hamza Yusuf is experienced, charismatic or bright enough to turn it round. He might be a, a, a decent enough guy, but I genuinely don't think that he's got what it takes. And it's a, an, almost an impossible job to succeed a, a politician with this. With this you know, the SNP have had two hugely charismatic leaders in Alex Salmond and then Nicola Sturgeon. So it's always going to be a, a very tough wicket. You know, the, the, yeah, I agree. I think, um, I think following Sturgeon was always going to be difficult and he inherited a set of problems that nobody would want to inherit. I think you've got to get 5% of the vote to get your deposit back. And yeah, I think only right. two of the parties got more than 5% of the vote and the Tories didn't. Um, there is this feeling that momentum, and I don't mean the momentum, I uh, don't mean the organisation, <laughs> is building for Labour in Scotland as well. And for them to get an overall majority, they've got to take significant seats from the SNP at the next general election. And certainly that election vote last week suggests that they will. Um, we're going to talk about on manoeuvres now. Do, do, do. We should have its own theme tune for this. We should do, we? we should do. Yeah. So, as you mentioned, it's basically the entire Tory party. I'm going to throw some names at you, and then I'm going to give you a few thoughts, and then you're going to give me your insight. So, you you messaged me, Penny Morden, and a speech, uh, in which she used the phrase, stand up and fight for your right to party. I made that bit up. But she used the phrase, stand up and fight, 12 times in a bizarre speech at the Tory party conference. What was your take on that? I thought that was deeply, deeply weird. Oh, my dear God, that <laughs> speech about fighting. Did, did you see James O'Brien's meme on it where he picked it apart, the, the LBC yeah. broadcaster? Yeah, it made it look even more deranged. I mean, they have completely lost their minds. This is how they behave in Tory land, but it's almost mm. like they don't realise we can see them. We can see their weirdness. We can see this appealing to the kind of Nigel Farage's of the world. Well, it's just... Who was there? Who was there? Was. I, I, was yeah. gonna, I was gonna launch a new section within On Maneuvers called Party Party Leader Pitch. Okay, so do we think Penny Morden is pitching to be the next leader? Yeah, 100%. Of, and, okay, somebody else who we both think is pitching to be the next leader of the Conservative Party is Suella Braverman. She, um, she's the Home Secretary, and all the rhetoric that she comes up with is about, I'm going to fix the problem of immigration. You think, you're the Home Secretary. So she warned of a, quote, hurricane of migration is coming to the UK. Um, what's your view on her? Cruella Braverman. Well, where to begin? The thing about all the rhetoric on migrants, and Labour could be as guilty of this as anyone, is nobody ever questions why it is that people want to escape the countries that they're escaping from. Yeah? Poverty, war, climate change. You know, it's always about our agenda. It's always about them coming over here, taking our jobs, flooding our countries. All... It is absolutely horrendous, and it shows a real lack of humanity amongst um, amongst our senior politicians. Yeah, but the sad thing is, is that is that you know we live in an unfeeling nation. Yeah, it was certainly an unfeeling Conservative Party yeah. will like Suella Braveman. So clearly, we think she is on manoeuvres to be the next leader of the party. I thought, and and we spoke off air before we started recording. What part of the conference most annoyed you and we both agreed it was the way Liz Truss is trying to reinvent herself she's she was urged by senior Tories to stay away from the Manchester conference mid concerns she could cause difficulties with Rishi Sunak so clearly she didn't pay any attention to that she gave a speech it was well attended yeah there was there was a good turnout for her so-called growth rally yeah and uh, she packed out rooms she was here's the thing that really grated with me she was signing copies of the budget that effectively bust our nation yeah. yeah, Nigel Farage was there as well, another one who's on manoeuvres. Yeah. But you quite like him, don't you? <laughs> I interviewed him um, Did you? back in the day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, hosted I, an, I hosted an event in Lytham with a guy called <laughs> David Haythorn. Oh, who is from AFC Filed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he also runs a successful uh, uh, food vitamin business for pets. And uh, it, the thing with Farage, Farage is a great communicator, not a particularly nice guy, but he plays to his audience. I thought the fact that he was listening to Liz Truss's speech was interesting. I know we're speculating. We do like try and provide insight rather than speculation. But why, what do you think Liz, because Liz Truss clearly is never going to be the leader of the Conservative Party again. So she's had her go. What do you think is her motivation? I think she's a standard bearer for the right of the party. You know, that kind of Tufton Street brigade from the Institute of Economic Affairs. You know, they want to wave the flag for, you know, a deregulated Britannia Unchained. 
I think she could even become a standard bearer for uh, for the Farragists. Yeah, I genuinely can see can foresee of a set of circumstances that would lead to Nigel Farage becoming the leader of the Tory party. Yeah, and actually, you're not even the first person to say that, but I think Liz Truss is just trying to airbrush out the things that went wrong. She's trying to blame other people for what, what yeah. went wrong. And um, I, I thought the fact that there were 60 supporting MPs, uh, you know, there. The nutters. That, it's just horrendous. Um, anyway, tell me about the Northern Research Group of backbench Tory MPs. Yeah, I, this, normally this we name... This passed me by a bit. Yeah, normally we name individuals, but the Northern Research Group is made up of, of, of a lot of MPs from the North. Who are going to um, lose their seats. Absolutely. And they won this so-called... A lot of them came from the Red Wall... 2019, when uh, Boris Johnson swept to power, they can see the writing on the wall. I think the MP who's the chairman of it is John Stevenson Carlyle. from Carlisle. Yeah, and mm. obviously, um, you know, our mate from Pendle and Rosendale, Jake Berry, was the chairman. Darwin and Rosendale. Darwin and Rosendale. Andrew and then he became. Stevenson in Pendle, isn't it? Uh, that's right. That's yeah. right. I'm are, they, more... are they all right? I, mean, I, I don't know. What do you think of Jake Berry? Um, I'm not a fan. I'm no. not a fan. Of, but, but of course, he swept to power and he became the chairman of the party under Liz Truss. You know, so anybody who associated with Liz Truss at the time and was willing to stand up on her behalf and speak on her behalf, then you lose, lose his credibility in my eyes. I think the Northern Research Group can see the fact that, um, you know, they are in the last chance saloon. They've spoken about having a dedicated minister for the region. I mean, once again, it's soundbite politics. It's not going to happen. Um, somebody that you've spoken to this week, and I thought what he did was quite interesting and I didn't agree with it. Sasha Lord, the nighttime economy advisor of Greater Manchester, has become even more political. He joined the Labour Party not so long ago. He filled Manchester with huge billboards slamming the Tories amid their party conference, claiming the government, quote, left millions out to dry in the events industry during the pandemic. Uh, I don't think anybody would dispute that. But What don't you agree with? Well, the, the fact is... The fact is, is that he's turning the clock back to something that happened uh, 18 months ago, um, you know, and Sasha Lord is becoming more political. You know, Sasha Lord, um, should should the role of a nighttime economy advisor for Greater Manchester be apolitical, yes or no? He can do what he wants. He's not, he's not restricted by that. I mean, he advises the Labour mayor on issues regarding the economy. He's got more political because the more he's, he's involved himself in the in the political system, he's, he's seen it for what it is. Do you think Sasha was right to, you know, have these great big adverts emblazoned around the well, Tory well, let's, conference? Well, let's just be absolutely clear. He had a he, he took out an advertisement overlooking Tory conference on one of those digital billboards that got taken down after a day, you know, raising the issues about how the how the government let down self-employed people, and then he paid for these vans to go around this city. But yeah, I had a I had a chat to him over the weekend. It was really interesting. Um, about some of the campaigns that he's that he's thinking of, um, of doing. He's also a big fan of this podcast, by Good. the way. Is he going to come on the podcast? Yes, he said he would. Good. Yes. Well, I'd like to have him. I'd like to have him. Yes. Anyway, let me finish. Let me yeah. finish. The significance... <laughs> you sound like a politician now. Let me finish. <laughs> okay, I'll let you finish, Michael. Can I finish? Yeah. Anyway, the significance of all these right-wingers, not Sasha Lord, on manoeuvres, is it's all about the long-term grappling for the soul of a shattered party... The weird right, the thick right, all of them in that room. The few thousand people who lead local associations, who ultimately shape and then elect the leader of the party. But also, most significantly of all, was what was the headline in the Daily Mail the next day. It was, like I said before, it was all about how Rishi Sunak can save the country from Starmer's woke agenda. I mean, they have completely lost their minds. That's what it's all about. Culture wars. It's all tactics, no strategy. And I've been very critical of Sunak's lack of political nous, but this has just taken it to the other extreme. But, but do you actually think that Sunak wants to do this? Or do you think that... Because I think, and I've spoken about it, I think Sunak fundamentally has got integrity, which Boris Johnson and Liz Truss haven't got and never did have. And I think what he did for the first year is he, he, he stabled the ship. Um, but I think he's looked at the numbers now and he said, right, you're going to see the real, you're going to see the real slim, shady Sunak stand up and he's going to take his cashmere jumper off. And then 
somebody analyzed the Tory conference and it was, these are the things we are not going to do. Okay, so, you know, let's sum up. We are not going to allow vaping. We are not going to allow smoking. We are not going to do high speed two. You know, we are not going to have A-levels. These are the things we are not going to do as opposed to a party that sold us an aspiration of the things that we could do. Yeah, well, that's, in a nutshell, supposedly that's what small C conservatism is is all about, isn't it? It's It's about defending what we've got that we like and also, you know, articulating a positive vision for the future of and supporting business. And yet I, I didn't pick up anything at all. You know, one could buy into the vision of, you know, a successful Silicon Valley, Stanford-educated, self-made man who's done all those things. But I think he's ditched that now. I think no. he's ditched it because it wasn't working. And I think he's just become like Johnson and Truss. He's just going to fill in potholes. Um, we, we always have a section uh, called Anything to See Here. And there was a couple of stories that caught my eye last week beyond the uh, the Tory party conference. Uh, we've spoken a lot about Andy Burnham's B network and Liverpool City Regions Mayor Steve Rotherham has announced that they'll be refranchising their buses too, only the second region outside of London to do that. The first one, of course, being Manchester. Anything to see here? Yeah, definitely. I think buses are big news. I think more people use buses than use trains, but people who use trains tend to be in white-collar jobs who are that, with access to the media and can articulate their rage a lot more on social media. I think buses and uh, making them better, more efficient, is, is altogether a good thing. I thought it was interesting that Steve Rotherham incidentally announced that during the party conference, the Conservative Party conference, yeah. ahead of the Labour one. I think that might have been a timing about the um, schedule of local government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, private what, what Eye. Else? Private Eye, you're a big reader of Private Eye. I always say to you, Michael, just watch your words because we don't want to get into trouble legally. But um, we talk about this. Um, Teesside Mayor, Ben blocker Houchin. I, I actually have got multiple uh, Twitter accounts, uh, formerly, well, actually X accounts, formerly known as Twitter. Um, but obviously he still blocked us. But um, Richard Brooks, who's the investigative journalist at Private Eye, he's made it. He's made a, a number of new claims about uh, what's happening at Teesside Freeport and uh, the role of Ben Blocker-Houchin, including a £13.9 million commission that they've declined to explain. Houchin, normally so prolific on Twitter, has been very quiet on the story. Uh, and it hasn't, I noticed, been picked up by anyone else. Now, Houchin's consistently denied any wrongdoing. As I've said before, Mr. Houchin, blocker, you are welcome on this show to put your side of the story forward. Do you think there's anything to see here? Yes, I do. As I read that piece, it's very forensic. It's very detailed. It makes the very serious point that the rewards, but less risk, are heading towards two businessmen behind a company called Teesworks, very much against the spirit of what Houchin said on Newsnight when he defended himself in the way that you... Uh, quote in there and Richard Brooks makes the allegation that this is smoke and mirrors and Enron style accounting now that's a big one for the teenagers there yeah. no that's a big 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 claim um, that was I an think, energy company that went bust in the early 2000s by the way kids I, I think the message though is uh, to Ben Blockhouchin is this story's not going to go away and you know it's going to keep coming back yeah. and back and back so well done private eye and on that note let's go to another break <laughs> Business Cloud and Tech Blast combined business and tech. Last week, Tech Blast hosted its first ever Fuel Manster event to rave reviews. Fuel Manster is a two-part event starting with a business breakfast and finishing with a cohort of businesses coming face-to-face -face with some of the biggest names from the northern business sector. You could feel the excitement in the room. Tech Blast is your launch pad for growth. Welcome back to part three of Northern Spin. This is a bit we normally call the fun bit, but in light of the horrific scenes from Israel over the weekend, and I found them horrendous to listen to, I thought we should get your insight, Michael, because you've literally just come back from Israel, in fact, the week before this all happened. Yeah, I think there are some pointers on foreign policy around the party conferences, and I was willing to, uh, expecting to talk about that especially about Britain's lack of esteem on the world stage. And I was going to give a nod to an event that I'm chairing at Labour Conference tomorrow with the Manchester-based NGO Minds Advisory Group about the de-escalation of wars. But yeah, I was in Israel last week. And I said at the time on my return on some of the Facebook posts, which seemed quite insensitive and misplaced, and, and it makes us seem quite reckless that I said it was edgy. 
also an exciting place to be. But, you know, it's it's an absolute bloodbath now. You went on holiday. That's the point, though. You went I on did, holiday yeah. before, obviously, all this happened. I did, yeah. Um, and just paint a picture of what Israel was like when you went there 10 days ago. Yeah, so um, there's lots of observations I can give you, particularly about the number of guns that you see around, lots of armed people. Um, anyone in it, lots of people in a uniform. We took a train both to um, Serot, which is borders Gaza, um, and changed trains there. We went to Jerusalem, which was heavily armed. We probably against foreign office advice, we went into the old city of Jerusalem via Damascus Gate, which is on the Muslim side of East Jerusalem. Um, you know, there is a lot of tension in the air. It was Friday prayers. We heard the call to prayer and there's, you know, young men rushing to the call to prayer. Um, but it, it was full of people just getting on with their lives. You know, we went to the beach, we went to museums and art galleries. We went to, to restaurants and cafes. Um, you know, we were, we were in and out of Arab businesses as well as Israeli, as, as Jewish businesses as well. You know, it was, it was actually a, a Tel Aviv in particular, you know, a city of people just getting on with it. It felt normal while we're there. There's lots of news stories about the potential for a peace treaty with Saudi Arabia, for a normalization of relations with Saudi Arabia. Also in the news was that Qatar had brokered a deal to open up the main border crossing between Gaza and Israel proper so that people in Gaza could go to work. Now that's not the language of a government that is waging war on Gaza, that is waging war on the Palestinian people, that is the opening of relations with other Arab states to encourage peace negotiations. What we did see was a huge demonstration, hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of Tel Aviv protesting against the Netanyahu government. We saw posters and stickers on lampposts all over the place saying, save Israel from Netanyahu. Can I ask For, a question about that? Yeah. Because um, I don't profess to be an expert on Israeli politics, but you know I've been around long enough uh, to have seen Netanyahu in different guises. He is he is far right, um, and he's 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 a veteran politician as well. These protests were they saying that they felt he was the wrong person to be, you know, in charge of Israel because that wasn't going to help the relations. Yeah, with... they had a knife edge election where he, he he got back in by the slimmest of margins by throwing a lot of. Um of red meat towards the right wing. A lot of the people who support settlers' developments on the West Bank, which I never would do. I wish that they would ro roll back on that, that they would respect. All this is edging towards what lots of people, reasonable people in the West want, which is what they call a two-state solution. And that would mean investment into Gaza and into the West Bank, the Palestinian areas, so that ultimately the Palestinians can have their own nation that could coexist alongside Israel. It really grates me when I hear people talking about the occupation. What they mean is that's denying Israel the right to exist, right? Gaza is not occupied. It's not a great place to live. It's impoverished. It's got almost 50% unemployment. Israel recognized that, which is why they allow people to leave in order to, to come and work on construction sites in either the West Bank or in Israel. And Hamas hates that. Hamas wants to wage all-out holy war. It is a fundamentalist religious organization, not too far away from what we saw with ISIS. And they want to feed hate. It ferments hate. And it's supported by Iran to a large part and lots of other people of, of uh, forces in, in the Middle East. Um, but, you know, I, I mentioned, Chris, that you know, we saw protests against Netanyahu. Try protesting against Gaza if you don't agree with the Hamas government. Yeah. See how, how far, how, how long you last there. And I think what we should, everybody in the West should do right now is actually recognize what it was that happened at the weekend. It's terrorism. I was really miffed at the BBC, you know, caught all this both sidesism, you know? Yeah, it was. It was they were I, massacring innocent people at bus stops, at music festivals, on the streets. people went to a music concert yeah. and they got shot hiding behind trees. And if I sound emotional, it could have been us. Yeah. It could have been mowed down in a hail of bullets. Horrendous. At Sidorak Railway Station. No. Anyway, so Chris, you missed last week's Tory party conference, which I'm sure you were gutted about because yeah. you were in Venice yeah, with it's, Leah to celebrate yeah. your 25th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's, it's strange to go from Israel to Venice, you know, but but this is the nature of the Northern Spin podcast. Um, yeah, there's something I want to talk about. So um, we, we decided to go to Venice because it was somewhere we went 20 odd years ago. We wanted to go back for our anniversary. Um, and, and we were there for four days. You know, 29 million 
uh, visitors every year to Venice. It's phenomenal. That was before COVID and they're pretty much back to pre-COVID levels as well. We hear a lot about climate change as well. Venice is sinking by one to two millimetres a year. That doesn't sound like a lot, but over the course of a decade, that's a significant amount. It's worth making a point as well that Venice is actually built on mud flats. And what they did back in the day, they used to like pit these long wooden piles into the ground and they build these huge buildings and towers and monuments on top of it. So when you walk through St. Mark's Square, which is the main thoroughfare in Venice, you can literally see these huge these grates and these huge pools of water rise through the grates during the course of the day. St. Mark's Basilica, which Mrs. M loved, she loves all the culture. Well, I don't. Um, but it was impressive. It was impressive. It regularly floods. Uh, our tour guide touched a wall and this big puff of dust came off it. Um, a lot of the tallest towers in, um, you know, in Venice are leaning. You're not allowed to walk up there anymore. It's, it's pretty scary to look at as well. Um, and the other thing that really struck me when I was there, um, you know, was the was how news travels. So our anniversary was the 3rd of October. And uh, me and Mrs. Emma sitting on the uh, sitting on the the rooftop because nice twenty three degrees, climate change again. Thank you very much. We're sitting there in our in our shorts, um, and I got a text message from my brother to say, "You're right, Chris. Just seeing the story about the coach crash in Venice, that happened probably three miles from where we were sitting. No news of it anywhere. That killed twenty one people, and the story reached me from my brother in England. Then it then it wow. did in Venice as well." And I really enjoyed the four days, but just what struck me was, you know, that nobody talked about the tragedy. There were some flags that were flown at half-mast, but the people who were there were there to have a good time. Yeah. And actually, Venice is the sinking city. And me and Leah both said, you know, you generations to come, will it yeah. be there? Yeah, um, It's really sad, really sad. Um, now, I, I, I've been to Venice. Have you? When did you go? Yeah, I went in the 80s and I got lost. Did you? I was 17 years old, got lost. My mother is still traumatized by it to this day. Well, and she'll be watching this now and like with a fist in her mouth, recalling it. Well, we Sorry, found Mom. you. We found you. Um, now, this podcast wouldn't be uh, the uh, Northern Spin podcast that our listeners like if we didn't talk a little bit about football. But there was a um, very uh, a very sad uh, news story last week. About yeah, the death it was. Of- uh, the Manchester City legend Francis Lee passed away. Um, I saw there was a great a great post that my friend David Parkin did, ex business editor of the Yorkshire Post, and the founder of the Business Desk did a great post about a dinner that he hosted where he invited Francis Lee to come along and uh, reenact his big on uh, on pitch punch up with Norman Hunter. <laughs> they got Norman Hunter to come along and talk about it, and it was a really warm tribute to both Norman Hunter, who's passed away during COVID, and and, and Franny Lee. Um, he wasn't just a footballer, though, was he? he was a no, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. I interviewed uh, Brian Horton about oh, two months ago, the former Man City manager, who actually got sacked when uh, Franny Lee was the uh, you know was the chairman of the club, and he said uh, Franny Lee was he was a business person. He, he looked at football. He made business decisions. They brought somebody else in as the manager. He's pretty brutal. Um, but but as well as being a top footballer, he became a successful businessman. He's referred to as a toilet roll millionaire. He used to run Bolton based a paper recycling firm called F.H. Lee, which, when I did my research over the weekend, once employed a certain comedian called Peter Kay. No. Absolutely. You couldn't make it up, could you? Um, Very good. Um, anyway, a few other things in our uh, in the uh, fun section. Um, since we've last met, I've done an event with my old mate Tom Hetherington, Hetherington the go-to guy on all things food in the north. Um, now, he reminded me of the Manchester delicacy of Rice and Three, and my question is, is this a uniquely Manchester thing, right? Is it? What, what, you... what, is, what is a rice and three? It's, it's, it's rice and then three curries. Right. Have you ever had that? No. No? No. Um, now, my favourite in the northern, is, is it, in fact, uniquely a northern quarter thing? My, my favourite is probably a, a cafe called Cabana, but there's also the, the original and the best that they claim is from another cafe called This and That. Um, Cabana also do a really mean grilled lamb chop. But do they, do they not do rice and three at the harvester in Chorley, Chris? Well, you keep criticising the harvester in I'm Chorley. I'm not criticising. Okay. You know there's an open invite. It's just your favourite place. There is an open invite for you to dine at the harvester in Chorley. Just let me know. I can pull a few strings. This is the ivy of Chorley, is the harvester. Um, now, a couple God of TV programmes and podcasts. We always like to share a few things that we've seen recently. I started watching the Beckham documentary on Netflix. And okay. I thought, the thing is, right. with David Beckham for a long time, I know he's courted publicity, and I know he did the 
big spreads in Hello and OK Magazine for money, etc., etc. But he didn't go on social media for a long time. And um, he's sort of, obviously his kids have grown up and they've become celebrities by virtue of being, you know, the Beckham's uh, son or daughter. Yeah. Um, didn't know what to think about it. Clearly, there were certain areas where they sort of gloss over. I've only watched the first one and a half episodes, really enjoying it. And uh, my wife's enjoying it as well. Is it a series or a one-off? I think it's it's a, it's I think it's six episodes of a one-off series. Um, I think I've only got to the second episode. Right. Uh, four is it four? Uh, it turns out James, who is one of the uh, one of the one of our people here at uh, you know what media, and is a big David Beckham fan. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's got a tattoo on his body somewhere. Um, but another football story. Um, I want to give a quick shout out to a businesswoman called Michelle Harness, who is the new owner of Scunthorpe United, who have been going through some horrendous times in recent years. So yeah, good luck to her. That's right. It was a massive story on the businessdesk.com actually in the last week or two. Our editor in the East Midlands, uh, Sam Metcalf, has been all over it, the various twists and turns. It's been a very popular story. Now, I believe you had some holiday reading you'd like to share with us as well, Chris. Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a little known book from a little known author called Michael Taylor. And it's called, uh, is, it, is it 40 by 40 by 40? No, it's 40 by 40. 40 by 40. I did. Is it 40 by 40? It's a pun on the word four by four, which is a preferred mode of transport for people of Cheshire yeah. about whom the book is written. And it's about a guy called Roger Cashmore. If you had to describe Roger Cashmore to our listeners who don't know who he is, how would you describe him? Abhorrent. <laughs> Abhorrent. Um, Grotesque. And he's just obsessed with making money. Yeah. Um, and you previously did a column in a previous publication that we both worked for yeah. about Roger Cashmore, and you turned it into a about 340-page book, I think. 100,000 words. Yeah, yeah. And of which many of them begin with F and C. They, they did, they did, I agree. There were a lot yes. of swearing in there, yeah. um, and I have to say that there was a lot of... Uh, you know, uh, extramarital affairs, it would be fair to say as well. Um, I, I'm basically going in a pen and I'm circling every name and I'm thinking, who does that remind me of? Yeah. And for legal reasons, I can't discuss that. I but, got kicked three times by three different people who all said, Oi, what's this about a book you've written about me? I can by guess. Na by narcissistic people who think the book was about them. And my, my response always was, if you think it's about you, you're probably right. Yeah. And the other thing I used to say was, the book might not be true. The book might not be real, but it's all true. Yeah. It was... Because um, there are like real people in it as well. No, absolutely. I mean, Sam Allardyce gets a mention as well. Yeah. Um, so, no, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm halfway through that book. What, what are you reading at the moment? I read a book called Marrow, which is about... Uh, it's like The Godfather, but, like, but about the history of Israel. Um, and there's a great quote from um, the founder of the State of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, who said, our country could not be considered a real country until our prostitutes and gangsters conduct their business in Hebrew. Right, okay. Well, that's... <laughs> that's kind of the centrepiece of the book, that it's, you know, Israel's growth to be a major nation. It seems strange to be talking about it now when actually the country's facing a nervous breakdown and an existential crisis, but... Anyway, it's an incredible book. If anyone does want to understand the history of Israel, I'd actually recommend they read Exodus by Leon Uris, which is an outstanding piece of work. Okay. And, and, I'd, and I'd, if you want to find out you know, what uh, the private equity and the investment market is like in Manchester, then read uh, 40 by 40. Right, that's all for episode five of season five of the Northern Spin podcast. If you want to sponsor the podcast, get in touch. We're on Apple Podcasts, so please review us. Don't forget to press the subscribe button. Follow us on Twitter at Northern underscore Spin One or watch us on YouTube. Thank you to What Media for recording the podcast. Thank you to our sponsors, FI Real Estate Management and Assets Capital. Special mention to Elliot Taylor for providing the music. New beginnings. My name, as ever, is Michael Taylor. And my name, as ever, is Chris McGuire.